What's up, Bruin Bible listeners? This is your host, Will Decker. I uh, wanted to reach out and say thank you guys for all the listens, all the love. We see it on social media. We see it on YouTube. It has been sensational. And we want to encourage you guys, if you guys are enjoying the podcast and liking it, that you guys subscribe and like it, uh, whether it's on YouTube, on our UCLA LAFB channel, or the Bruin Bible, uh, to subscribe either through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, however you guys listen and react to it because it's going to allow us to do much greater things in the future. We're creators. We want to be giving the best Bruins content to all of our UCLA listeners. The only way we can do that is if we have a fan base that is locked in and helping us out. So we appreciate you guys. We love you guys. If you guys have been liking it, please help us out with a like and subscribe. LAFB for ESPN radio here on a Friday afternoon. Nothing better. Uh, we are rolling into the weekend. NFL playoffs are this weekend, Madman. I'm going to be using Bet Online and Underdog Fantasy to get all my bets across. I'm not going to lie to you, a tough one last night. I mean, this one was pretty brutal uh, for our UCLA basketball team. We're going to dive all into that, guys. Uh, we are actually starting to do basketball, but I know why you guys tune in for these Friday shows, man. It is the football, you know, two hour segment of LAFB on ESPN Radio. Rough one last night, buddy, but how are we feeling going into the weekend, um, you know, with some playoff football on the horizon, maybe some off time to digest everything that's happened on the basketball court and things of that nature? You know, Will, uh, it, it's interesting you mentioned that I don't drink, but if I did, uh, this would be a hell of a weekend to, to sort of start drinking given what happened to the basketball team last night. Uh, but I will sort of, you know, numb my sorrows with uh, some great NFL playoffs this weekend and and obviously the, the terrific conversation you and I have about football. So, you know, every, every conversation about football helps alleviate the pain. Yeah, man. And it was a brutal 90-44 to 44 loss for the men's team in Utah in Salt Lake City. Uh, we're going to dive all into that, so don't worry about that. We've got definitely our thoughts about Mick Cronin and where he's moving the program moving forward. But to start us off with the football side of things, Madman, we're cooking up different ideas for the off season. Um, I think this one is very, you know, something that we've done in the last few years where it's, we like to list the top five guys we're most excited about coming back to UCLA next year. And, you know, I gave you this kind of task to figure out who you thought was the most valuable coming back. I kind of did my five, had some honorable mentions. There's a tough cuts to the list because I think there are some areas like if this guy can ball out in this specific position group, it might alleviate some of the losses or some of, what the group looked like as last year as a whole. How did you attack this, and how much time did you put into you know the thought process of getting five guys together for UCLA, and how much they are important to UCLA's success in 2024? Yeah, well, it's obviously you and I kind of take things so seriously, so passionately, so definitely had an opportunity to reflect and and be very holistic in the assessment of who are the five most important guys coming back to the team? And I think where it was interesting is that there are certain position groups and there are certain roles on the team 
that have not been filled yet that are going to be really important moving forward. And so it's kind of an interesting conversation because I think it's going to open up a discussion around, hey, these are the top five guys that we know are coming back, and that's why they're the most important in that way. But guess what? There's a position group or two that could be just as important, if not more important, to fill. So it's kind of that, you know, false positive, false negative kind of thing. So it was a really interesting way to break it down. Yeah. And before we dive into that, once again, sponsors for this show to bet on your all your NFL needs. Man, I wish I could bet on Darvin Ham being with the Lakers after, you know, today. I think he's going to get the axe at some point. So it's it's not looking good uh, for Darvin Ham moving forward. But make sure you use code UCLA LAFB. You can get up to $500 matched on uh, underdog fantasy bet online use code uclafb lots of benefits there so make sure to check in on those two sites all right madman i'll give you my honorable mentions first Please. i want to hear if any of these guys may have made your list moving forward i actually think and it's it's tough to say this because i think alex johnson had the best secondary season we have had uh probably since darnay holmes in his like heyday final year was a third round pick to the new york giants you know, still in the league in some capacity. But I think Davies and Kirkwood are two guys I've really circled. I think Kirkwood, in that USC game and what he was able to do against Boise State, I thought there's there's the growth we kind of saw for a long time. And, you know, he was able to make some plays down the stretches. He was very inconsistent, very erratic. You could see some of the flashes of the talent that this kid possessed. But I saw the confidence. And there's that turn when you can do it against USC, the big rivalry game when the lights are shining the brightest, where you go, okay, maybe he's made for the moment now. Maybe he can step up and be a leader of the secondary moving forward. The other guy's Jalen Davies. I mean, he only had one interception this past year, but he had three the previous year. This guy's a former top 100 recruit, offers from your Ohio States, your Alabamas, things of that nature. He has some very high pedigree, you know, in what he can potentially bring to the football field. So I think Davies, I mean, he can regain form and maybe be the next drafted DB uh, to the NFL. I think Alex Johnson definitely deserves a shot at that. Whether, you know, these extracurricular bowl games and the politics of getting drafted will allow that to happen. I don't know if that's the case. But Alex Johnson, I mean, had as fine as a season as a nickel cornerback did in the Pac-12 of any of the last five to ten years. So I want to put that out there. And the other guy, it's, it's kind of crazy. I'm putting him on the outside looking in. We're going to have some gaps in the linebacking room this next year. Olafemi Oladeja, we've talked about. Like This guy has all the talent in the world, all the skill set. This guy was on my five, but I kind of moved him out due to some other more important needs, I think, and how these guys will progress, maybe in a, a bigger role, maybe more familiarity within the offense. Olafemi Oladeja, man, I just think 54 tackles last year, had the 80-plus when he was with Cal. Do they maybe slide him to middle linebacker? Do they maybe slide him to edge rushers we've talked about with that size and speed combination? He could be a sideline to sideline lag. He's a he's a freak athlete. So these are the three guys that have really stood out to me uh, on the surface coming in that just did not make my top five, but were very close. What do you think about those three on the outside looking in? Well, well, this is where, you know, a, a great minds think alike, or as my father would say, fools seldom differ. Uh, because I assure the audience we didn't sort of prep this beforehand, but it's actually kind of a, a brilliant segue because actually two of your three honorable mentions were two guys that made my top five. Oh. And so I think what's that's so interesting. For me, Will, number five is Devin Kirkwood. 
And the reason I say that, it's a little bit of an out-of-the-box uh, assessment, but when you talk about the importance of secondary and, and complementing that with the front seven, UCLA was never really able to replace Stefan Blaylock as the captain of that secondary. And we really thought we had something in terms of the heir apparent when it came to Kamari Ramsey. But now with Kamari Ramsey transferring over to USC, Humphreys transferring over to USC, there is a void in the secondary room and nobody has greater upside, Will, than Devin Kirkwood. We saw it with the flashes a couple of years ago with the interception against Washington, some of his big playability, and then it's revealed itself yet again after a period of dormancy with that performance against USC. And hopefully now that he is on the upswing again, playing with confidence, playing with a sense of tenacity and fulfillment in terms of his game, he's able to translate that into a very productive offseason and then get into uh, the flow for one final season at UCLA. Well, I go back to spring practice where Kirkwood and J. Michael Sturdivant were kind of going toe-to-toe at practice. It was almost sort of alpha versus alpha, and we just never saw that approach, that technique, that belief and confidence translate into the season, but it's all there. And given the losses in that, in that unit, I think Devin Kirkwood is one of the five most important players for UCLA success in 2024. And I think the other player, Will, for me, that's actually number four on my list is Olafemi Oladeja. And the reason for that is, again, when we look at this front seven, Look who we are losing. Darius Muasau, obviously Leatulatu, the Murphy twins, Carl Jones Jr. There is a massive void when it comes to athleticism and pass rush ability uh, with this front seven moving forward. Oladijo is probably the best athlete that UCLA has right now in the front seven. You mentioned some of the statistics, Will. He kind of scratched the surface of what he could do this year. 27 solo tackles. You know, half a sack, one interception. We saw flashes in that San Diego State game. We saw flashes a little bit in the Boise game, in the bowl game. His ability to put it all together and either take on that Darius Moasa role or potentially take on the Leatu Latu role as the pass rush, to your point, I think is going to be absolutely significant. And the fact that we're even having a conversation that he could potentially be either guy as the heir apparent just speaks to the level of athleticism that he has. So for me, Kirkwood was actually five and Oladija was four, A, because of their upside, but B, because of what they are trying to replace relative to the position group given the losses in 23. Yeah, I think those are great, great picks, man, for five and number four. We're very similarly aligned, a little bit different, and I'll get into that. I have at number five and four. So here are my two guys. I got Garrett DiGiorgio, and it's not mm. the guy you're thinking. I think Holstege, I think he's going to bounce back. DiGiorgio, this is year three of him starting. He really needs to take that next step and become, you know, maybe not in the Big Ten, but he needs to become an above-average tackle. He's always been average. If he can just solidify himself as an above-average tackle, like similar to what Alec Anderson was, right? He made an NFL roster with the Bills. I think he's still on their, you know, practice squad, if you will. But on the right side, he held his own against some of the best defensive ends and defensive fronts this conference had a couple of years ago and really 
you know, helped solidify the right side when the left side was Sean Ryan. And then, you know, you had Moffey and Gaines in the middle. So, I mean, it was just a beautiful semblance of an offensive line. And Anderson was a huge part of that. We need him to kind of become that Alec Anderson. And the line was putrid at times last year. It was very tough to watch. I think the offensive line is going to need some senior leadership next year. Holstage definitely is one of those guys. I feel a little bit more confident with him kind of going back to his old conference. I think he's going to work it out there. But DeGiorgio is the guy. I think he kind of regressed last year after becoming, you know, a pretty solid starter the year before. If he can get to above average, I feel confident UCLA is going to be able to not only generate stuff in the pat, uh, the rush game, but the pass game as well is going to open up there as well. And then I think number four for me, you know how high I am on this guy. I talk about him all the time. Jay Toya. And I, I want to say this because we are losing so much when it comes to that defensive front. You're losing – Arguably the greatest pass rusher to ever put on the blue and gold and Liatsu Latsu. You're losing the Murphy twins who, you know, I think if they test out and grade well, they're going to be day two, day three NFL picks. Like, I really believe that in my heart of hearts. You need senior leadership on the line, especially when you got two young edges. And the favorites for those guys are Grant Bucky, former USC commit, coming on the right side, and Collins at Champion, coming from Miami, former top 100 recruit. We need a guy that's going to, you know, buckle down, lead the defensive front in the line, even Keanu Williams, I mean, this was really his first year kind of playing a lot when he transferred from Oregon down to UCLA, you know, rotationally in. Toy is the guy. Toy has got, you know, double-digit, you know, starts to his name into the 20s now. He's going to have to be the guy to set the tone, get these guys right-minded, especially these younger players coming off and probably, you know, facing serious starting time. But we're going to have to get after these Big Ten quarterbacks and these Big Ten offensive lines your Michigans, your Ohio States, your Penn States, your Iowas, whatever it may be. So those are the five and four spots I have. What do you think about those uh, two guys going for me? Oh, I love it. I love it, Will. And and again, I think there's a there's a seamless connection here. We'll start with DiGiorgio. Absolutely. You and I have talked about really the Achilles heel of this team for the past year and a half has been offensive line. And we've talked about guys that have been unable to demonstrate their full potential as a result of this offensive line, J. Michael Sturdivant being exhibit A. And so uh, absolutely to sort of focus in on the offensive line is absolutely critical. And DiGiorgio is a big piece of that from a veteran leadership standpoint, from a continuity standpoint, from understanding Chip's system and, and moving forward. I think for me, Will, I think DiGiorgio is very important, but I think this is going to be one where UCLA is going to have to make a pick or two in the portal to really get enhanced as well. I think his improvement is very critical, but I wonder ceiling-wise. You know, he was serviceable a couple of years ago. Again, regressed this year. If he goes back to serviceable, I think it works, but I think UCLA really needs the reinforcements from a depth perspective. And I think we saw it even the last couple of years. This past year, I think they were probably three credible offensive linemen and, and slots four and five were really kind of a, a revolving yes. door. And two years ago, I think they had five credible offensive linemen, but we were always holding our breath if someone got hurt. And so I think now looking into the 24 season, I think DiGiorgio, very important, love the pick, love the position group. And I think that's one where UCLA needs to sort of augment it with depth. And so that's why he didn't quite make my list, because I think that the impact player on that line, I think is yet to be seen, you know, in terms of being able to get someone else in. But I love the logic and I love the assessment. And then when it comes to Jay Toya, Will, I don't know how you do this, 
But Jay Toya was number three for me, you know, in terms of his importance. So, again, we sort of seamlessly go into the next direction. Couldn't agree with you more. The interior run-stopping ability, you know, getting into the A gaps, getting into the B gaps, and really sort of creating uh, a victory in the trenches is so absolutely paramount. And Jay Toya not only brings that to the table in spades, but it's also going to be a leadership play now. This is going to be year four of him playing major college football. And I think just his ability, his quickness of feet, and I think if he can put a whole season together, I just was so impressed with his toughness in that USC game. It looked like he was going to be out for the season there, Will, when he was getting you know basically carted off. And then his ability to even play in the bowl game was absolutely remarkable. But I think his ability to clog in the lane along you know, with his running mate, Keanu Williams, really enabled guys like Latu and the Murphy twins to just be able to pin their ears back and maybe take even more chances, straight line chances than they could have in other situations because they knew they had guys in the interior, that defensive line that were going to win their one-on-one matchups. So couldn't agree with you more that Toya enables pass rush, big plays to take place. And that's why he's so critical for both of us. It's going to be interesting to watch him play under new defensive line coach, Tony Washington coming down from Oregon, you know, former Dan Lanning disciple who turned down the Alabama job, maybe the most golden job in all of college football. No, he's staying at Oregon. He's going to the Big Ten. I think that's cool, man. I think that's very cool. I'm Absolutely. sure he had some dollar signs in there to make him stay, but very cool nonetheless to see that happen. I think we have a similar top three, top four. Uh, mine happens to be because the offense was problematic last year. That was the reason they didn't reach the heights they should have. I got the three-headed monster, 3-2-1. Three, TJ Harden being number three. You know, he was sharing the rock. I felt he should have been the guy from the jump, and you can kind of see that stifled him a little bit. But the facts remain the same. The last, Two of the last three games of the season, he went over 100 yards, 142 yards and two touchdowns against SC. was a huge spark plug in that second-half route over Boise State in the bowl game where he got those two touchdowns, really got the crowd, the atmosphere back into it for UCLA. He finished the season strong last year, remember, with the Sun Bowl. Did that, had the touchdown run to seemingly put UCLA up and potentially win the game. He did it against Cal the year before. I really think this is the year for him, man. And, you know, he had kind of had to cut his chops a little bit more this year, but now he's the lead focal point back in a Chip Kelly offense. And I'm not betting against this offense, you know, not being able to run the ball effectively two years in a row with Chip Kelly and what he is with the run game. People are going to take this and, you know, spin it going, oh, he's he's happy Chip's coming back. No, I'm not very frankly happy about it. But what I can say is that Chip Kelly does know how to rushing offenses at the college football level. And T.J. Harden's going to be very good at that. Two is the most talented guy in the UCLA locker room right now. It's J. Michael's tournament, man. How he started and finished the season is so crazy. 278 yards and two touchdowns in the Boise State Bowl game and the Coastal Carolina uh, game to open the season. He had 319 yards the rest of the between games, the 11 games in between them. So consistency is a big thing, but when you see the talent, man, it is undeniable, unmistakable what he is able to bring out on the football field every given Saturday. Jay Mike, just give this guy some time to get the ball. And he's got a potential to be one of, if not the best receiver. And that's a big statement going into the Big Ten. I think he's fantastic. I think he's going to explode this year. If we just get some time for my number one guy, Ethan Garbers, uh, I think this is going to be awesome. And Garbers, I mean, just a lot of different reasons. 
His confidence took a very big turn this year. Won back the starting job. I think the, the adversity. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Will. Yep. Yeah, adversity. Uh, you know, just eleven touchdowns, three interceptions. Lost the job. Got it back. Got injured. Came back. Won the job. Even the bowl game, man. You know, sat out the first half of the bowl game. Really struggled. Then comes in the second half, nine of twelve through the air, one hundred fifty-two yards, two touchdowns, and a comeback victory off the bench. He just sets the tone so nicely for UCLA going into the Big Ten next year. And he's got to be the number one guy. He plays the most important position. It's finally his team to kind of go off of offensively. I just think there's a lot to like there with Garbers. I think the ceiling next year is about seven, eight wins in the regular season, and then they can maybe win a ninth one. That is the ceiling for what it is, you know, with the Big Ten schedule coming up. You're going to, you know, LSU. You're going to Penn State. You're going to be playing some of the big who's who within college football. But, man, Garbers, I'm just a fan of, and I think he really has earned the number one spot because I feel confident in him playing quarterback for UCLA. What do you think about those three? Yeah, well, I mean, we, you know, I'm I'm down to my two, and it was very similar. I had Harden two, Garbers one, and for very similar reasons, I think TJ Harden clearly now going to be RB one. You talked about the stats; I won't repeat it. But now with Atkins and Yankoff as sort of RB two, RB three, it's a very clear pecking order. This is TJ Harden's team, no question about it. Keegan Jones isn't here anymore. His feet, his cutting ability his ability to get to the second level of the defense and still have agility, I think is perfect for that chip zone read mesh running game concept. And everything begins with the running game. And then obviously I had Ethan Garber's number one. Will, the only quarterback so far in the history of football to win a game at the Rose Bowl, at the Coliseum and at SoFi Stadium. And just think, obviously he couldn't finish, uh, you know, that Arizona State game. He couldn't finish that Cal game. Imagine if Ethan Garbers was just there throughout, if Chip maybe pulls the plug on Dante one game sooner or two games sooner, maybe we're looking at a completely different season here. Maybe it's not eight and five, maybe it's 10 and three, maybe it's 11 and two. It was very feasible that that could have been the case with Ethan Garbers at the helm. I think now he knows this is his team in every way, shape or form. And I think he's going to translate that from a leadership standpoint. I completely agree with you, Will, on J. Mike. He's the most talented, the most dynamic, the most explosive single weapon that this team has. The reason I had him as an honorable mention is it's dependent, right? Yet again, it's dependent on that offensive line and who else UCLA gets in the transfer portal to fortify that depth, to fortify that size. They had enough blocking in the bowl game and you saw what he could do. But so many times this season, there just wasn't enough time for either quarterback to be able to get him the ball when he had beaten his defenders. So J. Mike, for me, was an honorable mention, not because of his proficient talent, but because he is most dependent on other players on this team and what else UCLA does in the transfer portal. But you and I, as always, Will, are totally on the same page. Yeah, and I just, I'm very excited to get spring ball going. We can maybe see some more of that going on. Chip will likely have open practices again, which is very exciting for UCLA fans like yourself and me. Uh, we're going to be signing off for the football segment of this. We're going to be talking basketball on the podcast version. So if you guys do want to tune in about this massacre that happened you know, last night, make sure to check it out. We're going to have definitely some very scathing thoughts about Mick, about the program, what we can potentially do as fans to maybe help out with that. But this is the LA Football Hour here at ESPN Radio 1090. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back with more football content in no time. 
Well, bud, I think we got to continue going strong, talking about the unfortunate circumstances of the basketball team. And, you know, I, I texted you this. I couldn't get a really good feed on it. I was just coming home from work. I saw, you know, it was, I think it was 42 to 27 when I turned it on. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go take a shower. And then I checked my phone and it was even worse. And then I just got more text messages. You're like, you don't even want to turn this game on. It is so brutal right now. And the final score really, you know, gave way to what was one of the worst losses UCLA has ever had, 90 to 44. They were outscored 57 to 21 in the second half per our buddy Ben Bulge. And we were, we gave up the most points of the season. We scored our fewest points in the same game for UCLA. Just a lot of problems. We did not shoot the ball well. We were not physical enough. Utah just ran it into the paint every time it felt like and just outbodied, outmuscled, outshot us in every facet of a basketball game. Where do we go from here? I want to get your initial thoughts on the game and what it means to be a UCLA basketball fan right now with Mick Cronin not having this team anywhere close to the standard that UCLA basketball is. Yeah, well, it's it's you know stunning. I mean, to be honest with you, and you and I have been part of the LA Football Network for three years now, and we've been through three football seasons together. Now, you know, three basketball seasons together. I've never been without words. Yeah, I've never been stunned in three years being with the LA Football Network until now. I mean, I'm I'm absolutely stunned, and I'm without words. And for someone who has grown up you know, 10 minutes from Pauley Pavilion, gone to UCLA basketball camp every summer as a child, and what understands what UCLA basketball means to the city, what it means to alumni, what it just means symbolically when you talk about Coach Wooden and the legacy of the greats uh, from, from a college as well as an NBA perspective. I mean, it just, it breaks my heart. And I was Really, I mean, to be honest with you, not to be overly dramatic, but, you know, there were there were moments where I had to sort of fight back some tears of, of, of watching uh, this game unfold the way it did. And, you know, there's been some bumps in UCLA basketball history over the last 30 years. When we talk about 0203 season was Steve Lavin's last year. And he, you know, there was kind of a culture of lack of discipline, lack of accountability. He always was able to sort of recruit really good players, but development was an issue. And he always sort of found a way to magically underachieve in the regular season, but then make a, make his way to the Sweet 16 every year. And that seemed to sort of save his job every year. But that 0203 season, he was just a cat with trying to get a 10th life. He had run out of his nine lives and the team fell below 500. And then the following year was was Ben Howland's first year and the team was under 500 because, you know, he was invoking a much more defensive style with Lavin's players. And so obviously there was a mismatch there in terms of system and players. So it was understandable. And then obviously UCLA basketball was back. And then there was another blip in, in 09-10 after Howland had three consecutive final fours and just all of these decorated players, he, he dipped below 500 in 09-10. It just, the cupboard was bare. He had so many great players in a row. Guys went to the NBA early. Other guys graduated. And then he kind of got the ship back uh, back right again in lieu to another Pac-12 title in a couple of years. So both of those situations were were understandable, you know, in terms of kind of coach, system, player, uh, circumstances. This is starting to become 
unfathomable right now, unexplainable right now. And, you know, it's one thing. This was UCLA's worst loss since 97. This was the first time UCLA started one and four in the Pac-12 since three years before Coach Wooden. Uh, Will, I mean, that's where we're sitting at right now. And I don't want to be overly dramatic here because it, it is one game and Mick Cronin the last three years has done a stupendous job. I mean, the final four Cinderella run, back-to-back Sweet 16s, look some bad luck last year. I think you and I both believe this was a national championship team just last year, obviously losing a ton of guys. But the biggest concern for me, Will, right now moving forward is just how lifeless this team is. It's, It's not even the record. It's not even the lack of offense. It's just the lack of life, the lack of effort, the lack of spirit the lack of confidence uh, that this team has moving forward. I think the thing that really stuns me the most in in some of the stats that you were mentioning, this was a four-point game for most of the first half. This was a a four- to five-point game. Utah hit a couple of threes in the last two and a half minutes of the first half to push it to 10. It was 33-23 at the half. So they're down 10. They go to the locker room where the coach is meant to inspire, to teach, to strategize, to educate, to uplift, to point things out. And they had 20 minutes with Mick Cronin. And then after the 20 minutes with Mick Cronin, they got outscored by 36 points. And so what does that tell you? That tells you that he's completely lost the team, that there's a, there's a broken culture, there's broken trust, And that is the part to me that I just can't get my head around. And in a year where this was always going to be a rebuilding year for UCLA and the success that Mick Cronin has had over the last three years, he had so much margin. He has so much rope this year uh, because we all sort of understand it's a rebuilding year. But the fact that we're sitting here at six and 10 and this team is as lifeless as it is, he has unbelievably sort of eaten up all of his rope after the last three years given what the product on the field is uh, and, and on the court is, Will. And I'm just absolutely stunned by it. And, and, and the one last thing I'll say before handing it back over to you is, are we at Mick Cronin's John Calipari moment here? I mean, our, did we just witness history last night? And what I mean by that is John Calipari, obviously, first seven years at Kentucky had an insane amount of success. Final Fours, national championships, all kind of off of the premise of being the one-and-done guy. And that night, you know, in the national semifinal in 2015, when he had his 38-0 team, his cat team, his Devin Booker team, where, you know, his second team could have been a top-six, top-seven team in the country, that night when he lost to Wisconsin, and then that subsequent offseason when Coach K decided to play the one-and-done game with just like he could, He's never been back to a Final Four. He's never had the same win percentage. He's not had the same level of of SEC championship success. His career completely changed that night in that national semifinal uh, forever, really, until he kind of reproves it. And have we witnessed that moment for Mick Cronin? Because the reason I say this, Will, is in this world now that we're living in of NIL, guys that can go in the transfer portal immediately is have we lost the room now? Has he lost the room in terms of this hard charging, get in your shorts, 
be up in you know this this ultimate disciplinarian that's always going to chew you out that's always going to do this tough love that isn't really going to prioritize offense and is always going to just be about defense and rebounding and intensity and does that style no longer work now that all these collectives are established and guys are getting paid big money and guys can transfer anytime are we witnessing Mick Cronin's John Calipari moment because the Jaime Hawkes of the world, the Tiger Campbells of the world, those kids just were the total package, you know, in terms of grit, in terms of tenacity, in terms of staying with it. But sometimes you have to sort of look back, even in Mick's last three years of so much success, did he really get everything out of Amari Bailey? No. Did he really get everything out of Peyton Watson? No. Was there, why didn't Bronny James come to UCLA? You know, as, as the, the blue blood, you know, L.A. school. So clearly there's a gap between Mick Cronin and top level talent. Guys that want to kind of come in and be developed and want the tough love. You know, he, he's relating to them. But those kids are now fewer and further between in this world of nil in the transfer portal. And I think we're at a moment here where I don't think this tough love attitude is going to work moving forward. And I, I think this program is at a crossroads. I think you're spot on, man. And I the reason that I can chart up that how it's going so chaotic right now is for two major ones. I think they've charted it up to they have players that are very one-dimensional and they're just not getting their jobs done. Stefanovic, supposed to be the shooter, three of ten tonight, one of three from three-point range, not knocking down threes. This has been going on ever since we've entered Pac-12 play. It's been very, you know, rough and chaotic to watch. You have Sheldon Mack, who's the scorer, right? He was 2 of 13 from the field tonight. He was in single digits. If Sheldon Mack's not getting you 15-plus points, I really don't even not know how UCLA can compete for these games. You have Bono, who's the traditional big, the guy who's supposed to be grabbing rebounds. Oh, by the way, UCLA was out-rebounded tonight. This looks like a typo. 50-28 to 28 on the glass. Like, that is, that is as dominant as you will ever see one team to another on the rebounding glass. Bono had two rebounds, and he had three the previous game against Cal. So your big man's not doing his job. Your shooter's not doing his job. Your main scorer's not doing his job. Oh, yeah, we've never had a facilitator. So we have no facilitator to even blame the facilitator job on. So you have a lot of one-dimensional players who are not doing their game to the highest level to make that team successful. So that's chaotic enough as it is. And you recruit all these European guys to come in here, your Burkays, your V-Days, your Adamaras. I guess the only way I can really compare it to is how Gonzaga went about their business, you know, by getting a lot of Europeans, foreign players. They had Hachimura, who's now in the Lakers from Japan. They had Ronnie Turia, former Laker great, come from France. They had this guy, Shemek Karnowski, in their earlier days who helped them make, you know, an Elite Eight run. You know, back in the day, Kelly Olynyk was Canadian. Like, these have a lot of different guys, right? With these different dudes – it took them two to three years to really master the system, master getting on a new campus and making some big time steps forward because they finally got comfortable not only in America, but learning the basketball game. They're relying major minutes on Europeans, guys that don't even know how to speak English, maybe even communicate with their teammates right now to get things going. When there's no communication, it's going to be very difficult for these things moving forward. So I just think with – how much pressure they put on these Europeans to come in and play immense minutes immediately and be very successful with also these one-dimensional players not doing their job. It makes it next to impossible to win any semblance of a basketball game right now. And, you know, 
excuse my friend, shit's starting to hit the fan, and there's no way to kind of round it up because there's no confidence there in the building. That's largely because of Mick. Do you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, well, I mean, it's. I think the roster construction, to your point, is limited. It's one-dimensional, and I think Mick alluded to it a couple of weeks ago with the nil issue, right? So clearly there's a nil issue. If folks still don't realize there's a nil issue, I mean, 90 to 44 the other night should be exhibits A, B, C, D, E, all the way to Z, you know, in terms of this being a nil problem. But there's a secondary problem too, and that is that even if you get your nil together, and even if you have a complete roster, does mix this hard charging philosophy, lack of offense and, and getting into players, is this going to work the same way? You know, is the moment, you know, coach K went one and done. And so Cal could never adjust. Now nil is everyone's got their collectives in places. Mick not going to be able to adjust to this new type of player as well. So there's two problems right now that's happening in the program. It's talent acquisition and it's talent development. And that's a really difficult place to be. I completely agree with you, Will, on some of these guys being very one-dimensional. And so they don't have the all-around players. I think there's probably an opportunity for an Elon or a V-Day to kind of be that. But again, Mick doesn't seem to give these guys any rope whatsoever. They come into a game, 17 seconds, they have one turnover, he yanks them, right? And so you need to be able to have some freedom and room to be able to make mistakes if you don't feel that trust, that confidence, that psychological safety, um, the willingness to try things, you know, you're, you're, it's going to be very, very problematic. So I think there's a couple of things going on here, Will. And the one thing I'll say, given Mick Cronin's style of ball, where you're going to use most of the 30 seconds of the shot clock, you're slowing it down, you're playing very tough defense, it, the scores are in the 60s. Will, it's almost mathematically impossible to lose a game by 46. It's almost mathematically impossible with his style. I could I could even understand if this was, you know, Tommy Lloyd at Arizona and they just couldn't hit a shot one night because they play a very fast tempo. Even if it was some of the Gonzaga teams of the last few years, even if it was some of these Kentucky teams that historically, even if it was a Lonzo team, Will, you know, that was averaging 80 to 90 points a game because there's just more possessions. There's more shots when things don't fall and, and you know, the game gets out of hand. How do you lose a game by 46 playing the style that they play, Will? This is the equivalent of Michigan or another ground-and-pound Big Ten team losing a football game by 70. It's not even mathematically possible because you're chewing so much clock. I mean, so the fact that they could lose the game by this much, yes, we can delve into the X's and O's, and you're spot on on the X's and O's. But this goes beyond X's and O's, Will. These guys have quit on him. These guys are afraid of him. These guys don't trust him. And so how do you recover from that? And I think, again, in these press conferences when he's saying, you know, these kids don't have any aptitude. They clearly don't have any game. I mean, he's tearing them down. You know, and at the end of the day, this is just 18 to 22-year-old kids. And to your point, some of these kids are international students who are getting acclimated to a new culture. They're away from home. They're away from their parents. They're away from their friends. They're away from the world that they know. They need actually more support. Like he needs to be building them up instead of tearing them down right now. And that's what's got me so unnerved about this whole situation. And where do we go from here? Yeah. And I mean, let's say the season progresses in a similar like manner. 
do you make the change like immediately after this year that Mick is no longer the guy that should be the head coach for UCLA basketball moving forward? It's stunning, Will, that we're even asking the question. It's 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 such a credible question that you're asking. It's such a right question that we're asking. Can you believe that given the year that we've had in 2023, 2024, with all of the conversations that we've had about football and basketball, that if you put the football coach and the basketball coach in a room, that the guy we're talking about potentially getting fired is the basketball coach. You know, I mean, it's 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 a stunning kind of change of events here. But Will, I got to be honest, if, if they don't show improvement and if we see another game or two of 30 plus point losses and guys just looking totally lifeless and disengaged, you know, considering all the goodwill that he's put together, it's it. you have to have a sit down conversation with him and say, listen, you're either going to be gone or you have to bring in some sort of an offensive mind and also completely change your personality moving forward. So we will be willing to give you one more year if you completely kind of change who you are. And I, 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 that's a, that's a tough ask, uh, but change your approach to young people, bring in an off. I mean, you, Martin Jarman is going to have to put his fingerprints on a full on kind of reconstructive surgery on this staff and on this philosophy to give him one more year. And if he's not willing to do that, then I think we're in a world where if this continues for a few more games, well, I'm stunned, but he's probably going to be gone. There's not a lot of rope, as you were saying, man, for UCLA basketball. And the guy that screams to me that would be a perfect fit for UCLA if the, if the job did become available. It's a guy that I heard his name kind of swirl around earlier. It's a guy that has connections to NBA circles. I mean, he was a coach for three years in the league, former UCLA Bruin himself. Earl Watson's the guy, man. Earl Watson is the freaking guy. He, Him and Baron Davis were two freshmen, the two first freshmen to start for UCLA since 1979 when they did it together in 96, 97. So, I mean, there's a lot of history there with Earl Watson, man. He's got the NBA circles. He'd be able to make it all these guys on one phone call to try to make a donation to the university to try to help out with the basketball program. You need a liaison that connects not only that, but to money and high power players. When you're talking about UCLA uh, basketball, man, and Earl Watson's that guy for me. Do you think Earl Watson would be a credible candidate for that coaching job? Credible candidate, credible candidate. Will that would be the, the grand slam candidate because Again, to, to your point, the UCLA roots, understanding what it means, affiliation in the NBA, tight-knit with all of the guys that, that are in the NBA right now, ability to get guys into the league, ability to let people know I've done this before and, and what it takes to be able to make it to the next level and also be a more modern, relatable, younger coach in this new era. And I think Earl Watson would be absolutely the home run candidate Will, I'll give you one more. And I, it's not as good as Earl Watson, but I'll give you just another name, Luke Walton. You know, considering, you know, who's who's Papa uh, in terms of similar situation, the connections uh, in the NBA, the ability to say, hey, I, I coach for the Lakers. I coach for the Sacramento Kings. I played with Kobe. I played with some of the greatest players in the history of the game. I won rings. I was coached by Phil Jackson. I mean, you know, putting all of that together, again, a relatability, a youth. Um, I think Luke Walton could be someone also not quite as good as Earl Watson in terms of fit, but someone of that same ilk, 
a guy who's played professionally, a guy who's young, relatable, charismatic, can uh, recruit, can raise money, and and also kind of understands what it takes to make it to the next level. But I think that's got to be the mindset for UCLA moving forward. I think we just got to think more like a modern sports organization. Yeah. And, you know, I would have thought it was impossible Arizona guy coming to coach UCLA, but Mark Madsen is Cal's coach. I don't know if you saw that. Mark Mad, Mark freaking Madsen, Stanford Cardinal, led them to their first Final Four in the year 2000, coaching the Cal Bears. Well, Will, what's so interesting, right, about the Bay Area schools is yeah. that it's a Cal guy is coaching Stanford, and a Stanford guy is coaching Cal. You know, it's unbelievable. So it's, it's, uh, you know, welcome to the new world of sports where, you know, anything is possible here. But I, I, you know, will, will I think of Luke Walton, obviously he's an Arizona guy and that's, that's that's a tough one to swallow. But I think of Luke Walton more as an LA guy than I think of him as an Arizona guy. And that's why I think it, it could potentially work. And I mean, just his dad, I mean, he's one of the all time great Bruins and faces to represent the university. So, yeah, a lot of work cut out. Earl Watson, you know, stay stay ready, buddy. We got you on a speed dial if everything keeps trending this way. Bruin Bible, we're officially out. Thank you guys for tuning in. Rough, uh, you know, game this past evening. But, uh, guys, hopefully there's light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully Mick can figure it out, and hopefully we can write this season. We'll talk to you guys soon.